Hello, and welcome to You Philosopher, a conversation about ideas. This week, I'd like to continue our conversation about conversations. In fact, I'd like to start with a question that was asked of me by one of our listeners. She asked me why it was that I had asked you all to respond via email, to ask me questions via email, instead of, I guess, doing what everyone normally does, which is ask people to uh, post and comment in the comment sections. And to be honest, it just hadn't occurred to me to do it. Um, I really never thought about trying to have the conversation through the comment section. I suppose it just felt more natural to me to ask people to connect with me in a more direct way, which is, of course, kind of comic given how indirect email already is. Now, if I were to try and give a better reason than just, well, I simply hadn't thought of it, there is research to suggest that these comment sections do not actually help forward conversations the way that we think that they might. In fact, that's why Popular Science on their website um, removed the comment section, which led to some fairly heated debate about whether or not they were actually doing the right thing. They had argued that, in fact, it was actually somewhat bad for science for people to be participating in the comments in that way, not because they didn't want to have a conversation, but because the research suggested that in fact it was actually doing more harm than good. Um, their research came out of, well, when when pushed further about it, they, they, they said that the research came out of Wisconsin-Madison and that a study had shown that when people participated in the comment sections, especially if the discourse was uncivil, they were more likely to come out entrenched and further entrenched in the viewpoints that they already had previously. So I suppose there kind of wasn't a point. As to why this is exactly the case, I'm not entirely sure. I suspect that perhaps there's something about actually dialoguing with other people that requires that we listen to their voices and look at their faces and kind of acknowledge that they have feelings too whereas when there's a certain level of anonymity or total anonymity we don't really have to engage um, with the idea that we might also consider that the other person might be right we can simply share our viewpoint and entrench our viewpoint further and then when people react in kind of a knee-jerk reactionary way they um, just kind of further proved to us that we were right, that they were just crazy people in the first place. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm going to look into a little bit further. Um, if you have any thoughts as to why you think that this research is suggesting that uh, people participating in comment sections, especially when it's um, not civil discourse, um, causes them to become more entrenched than their already previously held belief sets, by all means, let me know. I'd love to talk with you some more about it. Having said that, by all means, comment. Please do and share. Um, I just would like to encourage you to also connect with me via email and ask your questions. I think it is, in fact, a little bit more direct and it gives me the opportunity to respond to you more directly, but also I'm far more likely to, you know, respond here and try and answer your questions as part of part of our discourse. So having said that, I did want to talk a little bit about this idea of civil discourse, because last week we were talking about um, whether or not we should compromise. and 
whether or not conversation was actually a good thing. And I was suggesting the idea that conversation was one of the only means by which to figure out if we should actually compromise in the first place. In other words, maybe compromise isn't always a good thing. And there's some counter examples to suggest that compromise might actually be bad under certain circumstances. But I wanted to suggest that the one of the only ways to know if you should even compromise is to actually talk with the other person and try and understand them. And I do think it's important to note that um, if we don't engage in that conversation, that there are a lot of people who are telling us already what to believe, that there's a lot of people in um, in in uh, the political world who are telling us what other people are saying and often misconstruing their thoughts or making their thoughts sound crazier maybe than they actually are. And so the best way to actually know for sure if it's a thought that we should reject is to actually engage in the conversation about it. Otherwise, how do, how do we know? How do we how do we know that the compromise is in fact bad if we haven't engaged with the idea fully, or only engaged other people's characterizations of that idea? So the idea of civil discourse then I think kind of comes naturally out of that. Should we engage in civil discourse, and how how worried should we be about civil discourse now? Because I think there's something to be said for. The, the recent election cycle has done a lot of harm to civil discourse, or at the very least, we feel like it has. We feel like we've moved from being a good deal more civil to a good deal less civil. And there is a particular concern now that, in particularly, the, the president-elect is himself someone who is not civil and engages in kind of knee-jerk reactionary responses and just says what he thinks and shoots from the hip. And so there's a lot of criticism. And so it's it's worth thinking about whether or not that's actually a bad thing. Because if we're honest, about 50%-ish of the population voted for someone, of, of the voters who did vote, or of, of people who did vote, um, voted for someone that there is kind of this general consensus that he just speaks and just speaks his mind. And I think part of the reason why maybe the fact that it's not always civil and sometimes arguably rude is um, that appeals maybe because we think it's more honest and by that what I mean is um, maybe Donald Trump seems like he's more honest because some of the things he says um, someone wouldn't say it if they were just trying to garner favor in other words that thing is not a popular thing to say in fact we might consider some of the stuff that he says to be politically incorrect and so I think we have a whole large group of people who feel like they've been forced to be politically correct. In other words, they've been forced not to share their thoughts because their thoughts might be construed as sexist or racist or demeaning in some other way. So they're just supposed to kind of keep it to themselves. And every once in a while, it'll just kind of come out and they have to be ashamed. And here's someone who speaks like they do. And there's reason then to believe like, oh, well, he's not, he's, he's not being politically correct. So he must actually be saying what he means because if he, why else would he say it? Because it's not wise politically. He's not doing what's in his best interest as a politician. And 
So I do think that there's been this kind of motion towards the idea that when people are rude or when they don't engage in civil discourse, that's when you know what they're actually thinking. And that's when you know that they're actually being honest and that the politicians who are kind of saying things that see, it seems like they're kind of hedging their bets or they're, you know, saying something that no one can really find offensive. Well, then we don't know what they really think. And so we want someone who's going to be honest. And so part of the pushback of this is then that, well, do we have someone who's just going to say whatever he thinks whenever he wants? And then this could have a tremendous negative impact on foreign policy, right? How might the rest of the world respond to someone who just speaks their mind? And interestingly enough, uh, whilst there is some level of panic, I think this can be a little panic inducing. Like what if the president of the United States just like says whatever he wants to the chancellor of Germany and all of a sudden a world war <laughs> breaks out? Um, there is something to be said for, there's a, a precedent here in, in the history of the United States of us kind of liking these people that we feel like shoot from the hip. Um, almost kind of a Wild West mentality. Well, at least at, at least we know where he's coming from. At least we know that he's being straight up and honest. And uh, he's going to have our backs. And, and, and if that means it's going to come to blows, if that means it's, you know, we're going to get in a bar fight over it, well, then so be it. And in fact, um, there, in, there actually ha there has been at least one president that actually has been in a bar fight. And so I guess part of what's interesting about this is to realize that this isn't entirely new to have presidents who who talk like this. Um, and I'm not suggesting it's it's good that maybe we're returning to this, but at the very least, it's not something that's never happened before. And in fact, there's some really interesting kind of notes about it. Um, so for instance, Abraham Lincoln, who is often considered, you know, a very heroic president and a good person, in his case, um, Abraham Lincoln did have a tendency, especially earlier in his life, to lose his temper. And he was an incredibly, like, extraordinarily strong man. And um, as a result of that, in one case, he was actually uh, about to give a speech or starting to give a speech. This was early on when he was running for Congress. And a fight starts to break out in the audience. And he sees the troublemaker. And so he steps down and he picks this person up, basically by the scruff of their neck and by i think like they belt and he throws him the reports say something like 10 to 12 feet and just kicks him out right um which i guess would be interesting to see in his speech today um not all of the examples are quite as positive um so andrew jackson was known for being pretty knee-jerk reactionary and a, and a physical fellow about that kind of stuff. And, and, I, and, 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 and there is that kind of realization that our politicians are kind of talking about, like, meeting each other behind the barn to beat each other up. And Jackson, of course, had, had that kind of um, way of speaking, but also that way of acting. Now, in his case, he also, depending on how you, I guess, who wanted to find it, engaged in mass genocide, right? So he was the kind of person who um, helped kill um, you know, what he would wipe out entire Indian villages of, um, you know, women and men and children, and then he would have his soldiers cut their noses off and wear them as trophies around their necks. So not, it's, it's, it's maybe not always a good thing when someone kind of is a bit brusque. Um, one interesting case uh, that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was actually discussed by uh, Mark Twain. 
who I think helps kind of illuminate some of this question. I highly recommend this book, by the way. This is Mark Twain's autobiography, but it's the one that's come out most recently. There's some that came out sooner, but they're a little bit illicit. This is the one that he actually had approved of. Twain didn't want his autobiography to come out until a century after his death because he thought no one actually writes an honest autobiography and that he would be a little bit more honest if he knew that basically all the people he was talking about would be long dead by the time the autobiography came out. So he doesn't have to worry quite as much about um, censoring himself. So I guess here, then again, we have another example about people here in the States being concerned about themselves. But anyways, long story short, in the autobiography, he writes a little bit about uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who's an interesting character um, and definitely has some of that shoot from the hip, wrestling kind of a fellow uh, mindset. And so Twain writes the following about him. Theodore Roosevelt is one of the most impulsive men in existence. That is the reason why he has impulsive secretaries. President Roosevelt probably never thinks of the right way to do anything. That is why he has private secretaries who are not able to think of the right way to do anything. We naturally gather about us people whose ways and dispositions agree with our own. And interestingly, notice that in politics right now, there's this major concern about some of the people that um, President-elect Trump is, is, uh, is appointing into his cabinet and in, into uh, federal positions uh, or posi positions working with him. And well, look at the people he's choosing. They all seem kind of like him. Well, at the very least, as Twain points out, we gather people around us who are like ourselves. Um, Mr. Roosevelt is one of the most likable men that I am acquainted with. I have known him and occasionally met him, dined in his company, lunched in his company for certainly 20 years. I always enjoy his society. He is so hearty, so straightforward, outspoken, and absolutely sincere. These qualities endear him to me when he's acting in his capacity of a private citizen. They endear him to all his friends. But when he is acting under their impulse as president, they make of him a sufficiently queer president. He flies from one thing to another with incredible dispatch, throws a somersault and is straight away back again where he was last week. He will then throw some more somersaults and nobody can foretell where he is finally going to land after the series. Each act of his and each opinion expressed is likely to abolish or controvert some previous act or expressed opinion. This is what is happening to him all the time as president. But every opinion that he expresses is certainly his sincere opinion at that moment. And it is certainly not the opinion which he was carrying around in his system three or four weeks earlier, and which was just as sincere and honest as the latest one. No, he can't be accused of insincerity. That is not the trouble. His trouble is that his newest interest is the one that absorbs him, absorbs the whole of him from his head to his feet, and for the time being, it annihilates all previous opinions and feelings and convictions he is the most popular human being that has existed in the United States, and that popularity springs from just these enthusiasms of his, these joyous ebullitions of excited sincerity, and makes him so much like the rest of the people. They see themselves reflected in him. And that seems to me not so dissimilar what uh, some of what we're seeing in uh, politics today, to see Donald Trump, a very, very, very wealthy man, speaking to people while wearing that baseball cap as if he really kind of is a participant in, um, in that working class. Uh, they're seeing themselves reflected in him, right? We, as a people, seem as if many of us are, are, are seeing ourselves reflected in him. Um, there are some other odd cases, perhaps a little bit less charming than Roosevelt. Um, Lyndon Johnson, for instance, is 
kind of an excellent example of, of people who had a tendency to say things as president that you would be like, what the heck is he saying? Um, uh, I remember watching the debates most recently and thinking that I had seen something that was unprecedented, which was, of course, the discussion of penis size, though I guess it was subtle, but not really so subtle. You realize in watching it like, wow, these men are, are, are trying to trying to uh, <laughs> trying to reduce our concerns that they might not be sufficiently well endowed and i remember thinking to myself wow okay that's completely new but it's not it's not completely new um so lyndon johnson was known for bragging about his penis which i think he had nicknamed like jumbo and <laughs> would talk to people about it even as president of the united states and um he uh he seemed to have this insecurity about how how kennedy was so well known for getting around and really wanted to assure people that no he did too and uh it's particularly strange one historian reports and, and i can't speak to the veracity of this because it's so mind-blowing that it seems to me it can't be true but maybe it is um that uh a reporter was asking johnson about uh uh, Vietnam and uh, why the United States was there and apparently at least so it's reported uh, President Johnson pulled out Jumbo and said this is why <laughs> and apparently the reporter went oh okay you know as, as if somehow that solved you know answered that question um, I, I feel like maybe that was more a matter of there's literally nothing else you can say at that point <laughs> to someone i don't think you're necessarily agreeing oh yes of course that's your penis that's why um but uh what do you say when the president of the united states pulls out his penis i i, I have honestly i have no idea <laughs> and to be honest i hope i never find out personally um now having said all this i realize that it it, it may seem as if i am kind of coming a, coming across as kind of apologetic in terms like for civil discourse for uncivil discourse and for politicians being kind of uncivil like perhaps it might be read as if i, I i'm saying it it's okay you know don't worry you know things will be things will be fine it's happened before um and so i also want to give the other side of the argument albeit briefly um and and i want to do it by bringing up actually something else that uh mr twain wrote and he he writes I, again. This is read. He he writes this little kind of essay called "The Character of Man," and I recommend reading the whole thing. I'm only going to share just a quick excerpt from it. But he he talks about elections, and in it, he seems to hit something really kind of spot on for us. Um, he says he says the following. If because he's he's talking about lies that we tell our, tell ourselves. By the way, he says. Uh, if we would learn what the human race really is at bottom, we need only observe it in election times. A Hartford clergyman met me in the street and spoke of a new nominee, denounced the nomination in strong, earnest words, words that were refreshing for their independence, their manliness. He said, I ought to be proud, perhaps, for this nominee is a relative of mine. But on the contrary, I am humiliated and disgusted, for I know him intimately, familiarly. I know that he is an unscrupulous scoundrel and always has been. You should have seen this clergyman preside at a political meeting 40 days later and urge and plead and gush and you should have seen him should have heard him paint the character of the same nominee you would have supposed that he was sir galahad right um that he was an amazing person was he sincere 
Yes. By that time, and therein lies the pathos of it all, the hopelessness of it all. It shows of what a trivial cost of effort a man can teach himself a lie and learn to believe it. When he perceives by the general drift that there is this popular thing to do, does he believe his lie yet? Oh, probably not. He has no further use for it. It was but a passing incident. He spared it to the moment that it was due, then hastened back to the serious business of his life. And what a paltry poor lie is it, one which teaches that independence of action and opinion is prized in men, admired, honored, rewarded. And check, so check this out. When a man leaves a political party, he is treated as if the party owned him, as if he were its bond slave, as most party men plainly are, and as if he has stolen himself from them, gone off with, with, with what was not his own. And he is traduced, derided, despised, held up to public obliquity and loathing. His character is remorselessly assassinated. No means, however vile, are spared to injure his property and his business. The preacher who casts a vote for conscience sake runs a risk of starving, and it is rightly served, for he has been teaching a falsity that men respect and honor independence of thought and action. All the talk about tolerance in anything or anywhere is plainly a gentle lie. It does not exist, it is in no man's heart, but it is unconsciously and by moss-grown inherited habit drivels and slobbers from all men's lips. Intolerance is everything for oneself and nothing for the other person. The mainspring of man's nature is just that, selfishness. Let us skip the other lies for brevity's sake. To consider them would prove nothing except that man is what he is, loving towards his own, lovable to, to his own, his family, his friends, and otherwise the buzzing, busy, trivial enemy of his race, who tarries his little day, does his little dirt, commends himself to God, and then goes out into the darkness to return no more and send no messages back, selfish even in death. So I thought that was particularly interesting because, and I'll mention this again only briefly, this issue of election and party and how quickly, despite we were talking about not long ago, how there was going to be all these changes to both, both parties, and yet already you see in a lot of ways that they're that they aren't and that people who are deeply critical of of their party or of, of their nominee all of a sudden is um not so critical anymore um particularly of interest i've noticed in uh so ap reported the following it the following politicians have all said about uh mr trump perhaps in part of their uncivil discourse right the two th 2012 Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney, who once called uh, Trump a phony and a fraud, is a leading contender for Secretary of State. Nebraska Senator Ben Sasse, long uh, Mr. Trump's loudest critic in the Senate, has urged his Republican followers to root for Mr. Trump. And South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and also, also under consideration for Secretary of State, met with Mr. Trump on Thursday. While she eventually voted for him, Haley had criticized his Muslim travel ban and complained that she was not a fan. Mr. Trump in turn tweeted that she that she embarrassed her state. And so I just think that looking at that, there really isn't all that much difference from what Mr. Twain described in terms of it only takes about 40 days from someone to say, oh, they're a terrible person, so on and so forth. I would never vote for them. You should never vote for them. 40 days later, they're telling us that they want to be part of their administration. And 
really what that suggests to me is nothing about the Republican Party or about Democrats. What it suggests to me is something about humanity. Um, in other words, I think if Mr. Twain, who is now long dead, had come back or could come back, he would see that not much had changed at all. And I think if I were to say to him, oh, Mr. Twain, you must be so disappointed. He would probably say something like, my dear boy, I've always been disappointed, <laughs> but I'm not surprised. So that's actually, I think, some of the direction that I'd like to head in uh, next week's conversation. I'm curious to discuss the idea of whether or not humanity has really improved all that much. We think of ourselves as an improving species and that humanity has come a long way and that we have made a lot of headway. So I'd like to argue that maybe, maybe not. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, that ends our conversation today. I hope you have a wonderful week.